Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to podcast number two, episode number two of the Football Intellectual um, Pod. And today, um, my name is Ian Bender Chilenko, otherwise known as Ibu Corel. And I'm joined with, of course, Luke McCarthy, the originator of the Football Intellectual page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And today we're going to be talking about... Um, the three most overwhelming teams in our eyes in the Prem and then the three most underwhelming teams in the Prem. So I'm going to hand it off to Luke now and uh, let him start it off. I thank you, Ibu. That was a dope introduction. So as he explained, we are going to be talking about who we think the three most overwhelming and underwhelming teams in the Premier League are. Um, Essentially, we're going to be listing these teams out and then justifying slash debating. And then at the end of the podcast, we're going to be answering some questions that um, some of the followers have had for this podcast. So that's how it'll be going today. It should be fun. And let's get right to it. So I think it would only be, it only makes sense to start with the most underwhelming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. I think both are both are an interesting topic, but yeah, yeah. Let's start with underwhelming. Let's start with underwhelming. So, Ibu, you want to go first? Sure. All right. So I'm not I'm not going to give all three of the teams at I'm, once. Yeah. You know, I'm going to give I'm going to give the first one. Okay. Um, and the first team that I find underwhelming this season would be Sheffield United. Um. This is a team that finished top half last season uh, with, you know, a dynamic, exciting manager uh, in Chris Wilder. And one thing about last season is that they, they were promoted, newly promoted, and they punched well above their weight, taking points off the top six and uh, not just the top six, the classic top six that we all know and uh, either love or hate. But also, you know, they gave a, they gave a shot to excuse me, they gave them, um, they, they shot their fair shot at teams like Leicester teams, like um, who else finished in the top half last season? Wolves top six wolves. Um, and I remember Sheffield, Sheffield and uh, wolves having a pretty, cl- pretty tight race for that um, Europa league spot by the end of the season. Wolves and definitely ended up, um, wolves ended up at sixth, and I think Sheffield ended up at like 10th. Yeah, but I remember mid-season, uh, there was a lot of, you know, whisperings, are Sheffield going to be able to pip that that Europa League spot? Um, and so I think it, it just speaks to the quality of their management and their tactics uh, because they barely spent anything in their summer of being promoted. And um, yet they still finished comfor- comfortably uh, safe in the Prem, right? And for a newly promoted team, most most of the time their objective is simply just to stay up because it's such a financial boost. Mm-hmm. Um, you go from 40 million, uh, 40 million pounds in TV revenue in the championship to a hundred million in the, in the prem, if you can stay here. And if you can get that, if you can secure that second year, it allows you to one, invest in the squad two invest in facilities, three, invest in marketing to try to grow the team's brand and establish yourselves as a, as a prem level club, right? 
um, that's that's a whole another forty million to hundred million. That's literally two hundred fifty percent of the same budget, right? And if you go down, if you drop back down to the championship, you're then having to cut a whole lot of people who you probably hired as you got promoted to the prem because you're a bigger operation now. And Sheffield didn't invest much in their squad uh, in the summer after being promoted, right? Because I think they wanted to prove that their players were prem quality without having to pull a villa um, and spend a hundred million and literally scrape by, by the skin of their teeth, uh, if not less, you know, but this season Sheffield United, they're sitting 19th right now. Um, we're recording this on a Saturday night. So this is after they've played uh, Liverpool on the day and Liverpool won two, two, one against them. And it's, it's looking a bit grim for Sheffield United because we're now six games into the season, right? They have one point, one point out of 18 with a squad that they've hit. A, they, okay. They've had a few injuries to some key positions, but with pickups like Sonder Berga in the, in the winter with Rian Brewster, very promising youngster, um, a striker, Oliver Burke. Have, Oliver Burke still have pretty you know, intelligent players like McBurney. Um, you know, I'm not oh, going to say I'm an expert. Fleck, okay. yes. Uh, I'm not going to say I'm an expert on their squad, and I don't want to really – I don't want to speak too much on things I don't know about. But in a general sense, just one point from six games is really, really abysmal. And – um it's it's already dug them a hole that's going to be very difficult to get out that's of. So problem. they're fixed. That's a real hmm? problem. It's a real problem. And their fixtures already have been, you have to say, okay, I would say they've been a, a mid-tier level of challenge, right? So they had yeah, Wolves. This, last season, this run of fixtures, they would have gotten, it's six games, they would have gotten at least five points on. And... The, the teams, yeah, I agree. And especially, I'm going to list the teams they played against, right? They lost 2-0 to the Wolves opening day. They lost 1-0 to Villa next week. Mm-hmm. They lost 1-0 to Leeds the week after. They lost 2-1 to Arsenal the week after. They tied 1-1 with Fulham last week. And then they just lost with Liverpool today. And so, these are teams where you would expect a Sheffield United of last season to be at least competing strongly for a for a draw yeah against yeah, wolves they, against against villa definitely against leeds i mean leeds are strong yes you can say leeds are strong this season but sheffield united should you would think they would be familiar with all three of those teams leeds villa and wolves all three of their squads although wolves have transformed their squad and they're definitely much upgraded from their championship days but Still, losing to Villa 1-0, losing to Leeds 1-0, tying Fulham, Fulham probably on. by far the weakest team, yeah, like by a country cool. mile, the weakest team in the league. And you're allowing them to, you know, just get, get, get a goal against you. The, the problem for Sheffield, it seems, is not really defensive, they're, they're not shipping goals. They've only conceded 
what's the, I'm doing some quick math in my head right now, but it's two, two for Liverpool, one against Fulham, two against Arsenal, one against Leeds, one against Villa, and two against Wolves. So that's a total of what? Two, four, six, seven, nine goals. Okay, so nine goals in the first six matches. You could say that's not great, and it's not great, right? But the amount of goals they scored only totals up to four and the, they've not scored more than one goal per match if they've scored. And so they picked up Rian Brewster from Liverpool and promising youngster touted for his finishing his, his main promising strength youngster yet very, very unproven in the Premier League. And he was only half decent last season in the championship. He was looking good, but he was not, within that top bracket of players in the league in the championship. Well, well, he did, I think... He was promising for his age. He scored 11 goals in half a season with Swansea. That's not bad. That's not bad. But I think he's the type of player where you need to gear a system to feed him. He's a natural finisher. He has a, as a Liverpool fan, I've watched a lot of games that he featured in preseason games, League Cup games, stuff like that. You know, games that most people probably wouldn't watch of Liverpool, but because I'm a fan, I watch them. And I've seen that he just has a really, you know, sixth sense for just being in the right position and having that, um, that kind of Bamford energy of just, he's going to make it work, right? But it comes down to they're not finishing enough. They're not, they're not scoring enough. Sure. They're not shipping goals, but they have no attacking threat. And uh, yeah, that's why Sheffield are definitely one, the first team of the most underwhelming on my list. Um, what about you though? What do you, what's your first underwhelming team? I was going to say it's going to be Sheffield. Um, they would be in the top three. I don't know if they're the first, but since you said it, I'm just going to reciprocate because I definitely agree. I think they've done what the opposite of Villa. They've, um, I think the lack of quality has really stuck out. What do you mean the opposite of Villa? Villa scraped by last season, but they are looking very strong to start the season. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. The opposite. And Sheffield were strong last season and now have had the yeah. most and underwhelming the lack start. Of quality. To and I think the irony is that because Sheffield did so well last season, the signings they made were they were generally they weren't short-term signings they were long-term signings of younger players who have to take time and adapt to the league but maybe can replace their older group when they get i mean look you have um oliver burke and you have rian brewster and then you have mcgoldrick who obviously needs to get phased out so I don't know. They made potential signings, but they haven't really played much. They've been playing McGoldrick, McBurney, and Burke a bit, but their goal-scoring record's really been poor, and they just haven't been able to get those cheeky wins that keep you up. And I think it's those wins actually more so than getting consistent draws that really made them stand out last season because wins are really, really valuable. Three points yes. so important. And draws are nice. Draws are a statement, but especially against the top team, they're a statement. But the three points, as far as moving up on the table, they really propel you in a different way. 
getting a win here and there when you aren't expected to is a lot more valuable than fighting out draws constantly. Agreed. Yeah. And they don't do that now. They're getting draws and they're getting losses. And they're so getting they're the most underwhelming team. You would think that they would be able to challenge. I thought Sander Burgo would be a bigger impact player, but their lack of quality is just sticking out. And Dean Henderson also, his impact cannot be understated for them last season. So yeah. Oh, I definitely. I completely um I completely over overlooked that he was in goal for them last season. That's now they have Aaron Ramsdale uh look, coming Ramsdale's up from relic even bad. Well, coming up from a relegated Bournemouth side, I know. To be honest, I listen. I'm not a scout, but getting a keeper from a relegated side is not exactly one that I would go for. Maybe he was on the cheap. Maybe he was looking for a prem move. Okay, maybe he was something they could afford, and maybe he fit their squad. But he's he's not he's not exactly elite like Henderson. Henderson is an elite, but he could be elite. And he had he has a lot of last season. He showed a lot of flashes of elite, and I don't think Ramsdale is anywhere close to that. I think Ramsdale is good. I don't think he's been their biggest problem. But let's go to, let's move on. I'm gonna give my second team, and this is gonna be one of the more controversial ones. So everyone, bear with Chelsea. Mm. Chelsea, and um, I think logically. If you think about it logically, they were not super, super overwhelming. But I think given the how prolific the signings that they made were, you would expect them to be doing a lot better than they're doing. Just because People were expecting them to be the pushing for the, for the league title. Of, yeah, the turnaround on that type of deal when you spend that much money in one summer is that you need to get success for it to pay off or else you're going to be slightly compromised for a little bit even for a top club Mm -hmm. and so i don't think that they're doing as well as they thought they would be doing i think they're mentally buckling in a lot of ways they're getting a lot of draws and games where they should be getting wins which is a big issue as i said before draws are draws are really not good if you're a top team losses and wins subjecting your that's what alex ferguson said you always what did he go say? As, you always go as hard as you can you risk a loss for a win as much as you can mm-hmm. because a win is that much more valuable than a draw it's worth the gamble mm, and, that's um, an interesting point that's an interesting point i think chelsea's defense for a while was really leaky i think with mendy and gold they're going to improve but I think they've been very underwhelming. I think their attack has shown in a few games, but at the end of the day, it has not shown uh, in multiple occasions. It has mm-hmm. not rarely really clicked um, in a way where you would think by the the stature of the signings that it might do. But yeah, so that's why I think Chelsea is the second. And to be honest, it's really because of the signings they made and mm-hmm. the cost of the signings that it's like that. Um, because I think quality-wise, they are still better than most sides. Don't get me wrong. Um, and that's very similar to the final side that I'm going to name, but I'm going to leave that. I'm going to leave that for later. So, Ian, who mm-hmm. do you think your second is? Well, I want, I want to respond to the Chelsea shout because I think it's really interesting. Um, you know, although in an ideal world, we'd love to leave price 
tags out of the equation and just speak about players quality and what they're delivering you have to take into account especially during the coronavirus time when money's tight chelsea have splashed over 200 million this summer right and when it when it comes down to it 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 makes you ask the question why just simply why because they stack their attack so heavily by signing a completely new front three of Ziyech, Werner, and Havertz that cost, I, you know, with some quick math in my head, uh, Havertz was 80 million, uh, Werner was 50, and Ziyech was, I think, 35. So that's, that's bouncing around the 160 to 175 million range, right? And then they already had some good players, at, at, you know, on their books like Olivier Giroud, Christian Pulisic, of course, Mason Mount, Tammy Abraham. Um, Don't forget Ben Chilwell. Ben Chilwell, they bought him too. Didn't even mention him, but he's, you know, you could even, he's a defender, but he's also, he, he, he joins the attack quite a lot, right? Yep. And then and Thiago Silva, a big name Thiago, wage book. Thiago Silva. Yeah. I mean, he was a free, but the wages, the wages are going to be through the roof for him. Um, mm-hmm. And it really just, it, they're bringing on Z in the game against Man United today. They're bringing on Ziek in the 80th minute, and it's just like why? Like why would you spend so much on this player who's who's hyped up, who deserves to be a starter in 99% of teams in the world, right? Um, and he's just coming on just for some fresh legs type of uh, energy. I think what Chelsea needs to do is they're trying. Frank Lampard is trying to shoehorn Havertz into every game. He's pretty much started him almost every game. And this, the game they did best in this season was the game where Havertz and Tammy played together. So I think if he's going to use Havertz, he has to use him in a two striker system because it seems like him and Tammy Abraham work well together. But when it comes to when they're trying to play a four three three, or today it was a it was a three five or a three four three with a three, three up front, right? Have Werner and Havertz just, I know he's trying to make this German connection work and have them have chemistry. Then they can go back to the national team, have chemistry there and come back. And it just continues. Right. But I think you got to play Pulisic, Werner and Ziyech as that, as a front three and Havertz is more suited for a front two. Um, with maybe Mason Mountain behind. Uh, yeah, that's what I have to say about Chelsea. Okay. Um, so uh, I presume Chelsea wasn't your second choice. So for you, who is your second? Hmm. I would say Burnley has definitely uh, been underwhelming. Very interesting. Um, I think they've kind of flown under the radar because – you know, credit to them. They've been such a consistent prem club for years at this point, right? Um, but at the same time, they've only played four games compared to uh, Sheffield United six. So they do have a potential six points on Sheffield United, though Burnley do lie in the bottom three right now in 18th place uh, with one point and a negative five goal differential. Um so they have games to play and they have games in hand. Uh, they also have games in hand above Fulham, who are also on one point with a negative nine 
and Sheffield doesn't have a negative six goal differential, right? So Burnley could still rescue their season. And I think they probably will, but to start, I'm not sure to be fair. I'm not sure why they're slacking in, in these results. Right. But I think one thing that could be attributed to it is just staleness within the squad. Um, they've not changed their team much at all. Uh, they're very averse to selling players and they're very averse to buying players. They're, they're a conservative club in terms of finances, in terms of beliefs, in terms of structure. They like to do things the old school way, which I respect a lot. But when it comes down to it, when you're drawing nil-nil against West Bromwich Albion, that's a championship club who barely scraped into the Prem. And now you're drawing nil-nil against them. You've not scored more than two goals per in one game this season. And the, the game they scored two goals in was a 4-2 loss against Leicester on the opening day. Maybe we can accredit that to some opening day excitement, more of a crazy game, a bit more goals in the game. But since then, they've lost 1-0 to Southampton, 3-1 to Burn, uh, 3-1 to Newcastle, excuse me. And then, of course, the 0-0 the draw to West Albion, uh, West Bromwich Albion. And it, it, it just, it makes me question, when are Burnley going to really kick into gear, if they will at all? And will that even happen? So I think Burnley needs to address a bit of... They don't want to get left behind in terms of the pace and the play style of the league. And it's not like they have to change things, you know, to play like a more progressive side or a more energetic side. But it seems like what they're doing isn't working right now. And although they have promising uh, attackers, I think relying on a Jay Rodriguez 30 yard banger, you know, for a fluke win against man United, like last season, that's not always going to cut it. And um, I think they need some dynamism in their team. I think they need pace in their team. They have a very slow team. Um, this is a very pacey league these days, proven by teams like Leeds United coming up and their main thing is fitness. Bielsa is all about fitness there's I was watching um the, the Leeds game and in the 95th minute there's a counterattack that Leeds are attacking Aston Villa's goal seven Leeds attackers are sprinting up to the opposition box against four Villa defenders because Villa were gassed and Leeds still had energy at that time and I think Burnley they, they completely lack that because they're in a more conservative defensive um coaching mindset and i think listen i'm not a coach but i think they need they need some type of dynamism and pace in their team yeah i could definitely see where you're coming from and i i saw burnley for so long was like a stalwart prem team because they knew how to just get it done in their own way and they uh they always had a very effective 4-4-2 with a low block of that midfield really close to the defense, very hard to break down once you get in the defensive third. Um, and they their defense really always stuck out. That was always the consistent good thing. Nick Pope, Tom Heaton, both great goalkeepers. Tarkowski, um, great center back. And so 
Yeah, they have yeah, a, they have a very strong defense, of course. Yeah, they've always had a quite strong defense. Ben Mee, obviously, he's a very good player. Um, but I think what they lack now is their defense is all right. It, but if you don't score any goals, you're fucked. And uh, for a long time, they relied on Ashley Barnes to score. Uh, his injuries are catching up to him, I believe. He has not been scoring too much. Dwight McNeil, he's young, he's decent, but he's not enough to create consistent chances. And Chris Wood, who was one of their biggest scorers last season, just isn't as prolific at the moment. And, and Dwight um, McNeil is much more of a creator than that oh, finisher. Well, he's he's but the guy who's going to linger on the corner of the... Hmm? Yeah, but his creation has been com- has become crucial. Mm-hmm. Because he's the guy who's going to linger on the corner of the penalty box and whip in across or find an incisive pass also or drive. They've lost Jeff Hendrick to Newcastle. Jeff Hendrick. And Jeff Hendrick was a great was a scorer for them. Very yep. good midfield goal scorer. Um, his late runs were effective. He could defend, but he also knew how to put up a shift in the attacking third and score goals with his late runs for midfield. He's tall. He is a threat. Um, he was very good for them. He's, he's very useful for their game because he can aid that low block, but when they need to counter, he's also effective. So losing him, I think, was it's had more of an impact than we may have realized before. And so I definitely agree with you there. And so now I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go to my final team. And sure. it might Let me hear it. be slightly controversial, but at the same time, I think it's kind of deserved. I think Manchester City have um, been very underwhelming. And I think given the expectations that a lot of people had for them, they might be the most. And they've made some big, big signings on top of a year where they failed in the Champions League, they failed in the Prem, and they failed in the FA Cup. It's mm. big. And they made some big signings, but the start to their campaign has been more negative than any of the last three seasons. I love that shout. That's such a, I mean, I wouldn't say it's controversial, but it's brave, you know, because a lot of people came into this season. I think a lot of people got stuck in that last season mindset and let's be honest this is covid everything's different they restarted the season in june they finished the season in late august and then started the next season in mid-september merely a few weeks later right so most i was watching you know youtube channels a few podcasts you know football daily on the bbc Big, big uh, pundits, right? And they're all saying, oh, yeah, I guess I, I, you know, it's going to be Liverpool and City again. Look, I mean, we're six games into the season. There's a lot to go, right? But the pace is set from the onset, right? The pace is set from the jump. And when you have a team like Everton, you know, winning four out of five of their opening or joint top of the league right now, and then you have a team like City who have bought Ruben Diaz, bought Ferran Torres, you know, kept Cancelo, kept Walker, bought Nathan Ake as well. Um, it's You would obviously pin them to be 
league leaders and, um, you know, just setting the tone and setting the, the attitude for any team that wants to come against them, that it's like, if we're going to go against Man City, we need to be at the number one, even higher than one level that we can be. But what it's come down to and the reality is that City have lost a lot of leaders on the pitch. They lost David Silva, Vincent Company, Aguero's barely there anymore. So it, it's it's a whole new fresh faces team. And I think Pep's trying to make it work. But when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, they really don't have anybody who's going to just bust their ass and yell at them on the pitch before their goal score, the, the goal scored against them, right? So, you know, people are always going to yell after the goal scored. Hey, what are you doing? What are you? But they don't have anyone that's going to scream at them simply for missing a tackle or misplacing a pass or making a mistake. And that's what they had before. Real strict leaders who had the highest standards, especially without De Bruyne now because of his injuries. They have no one really taking control on the pitch before there's a problem. The only time that they you know, try to fight back is after they've been scored on. But it seems like City start the game with this assumption that we just won't be scored on. We're just going to pass around for 75% of the game, find a chance and score. And let's be honest, their team has been figured out just enough where opposition teams that they might consider quote unquote lower than them can now figure out enough to get that goal get that first goal or get some type of corner set piece goal or something, something on the break. And, uh, you know, once city can see the goal, it's been proven this season. They're a lot less mentally strong. Yeah. I, I agree with every point you mentioned for the most part. Um, I think the interesting thing about city for me is that most games I watch, there are portions of them where I just think, wow, city might be the most technically gifted team in the league because individually they are just brilliant and sometimes the way the fluency of their passing and their movement is just incredible to a point where it's like damn this team really knows how to fucking ball but Mm -hmm. I think the mental fragility has really um, increased and I think maybe lack of leadership might be one of the reasons why no Mm -hmm. more fun on any part of the team Fernandinho too. I I forgot to mention him. Yeah, big. I think David Silva was big and he left. David Silva was there for a long time. Let's not forget. Ten years. Big. He obviously left a while ago, but he still left, and that's a big loss. Um, Mm -hmm. There were a lot of leaders in the team who were played during their best seasons and aren't there anymore, and I think they're gonna have to readapt. But I think mentally they are struggling with that, and they are less ruthless than they used to be. Um. And they are equally as technically talented. They have incredible personnel. Phil Foden's shining, to be honest. He's doing great. Phil Foden's class. Probably their standout performer yeah, this, yeah. He this, might be. this season. Ferran Torres has looked pretty good for them to start the season. Joao Cancelo is starting to shine for them as well. I agree. Joao Cancelo is coming out of his shell. But a lot of their consistent performers otherwise aren't actually delivering. De Bruyne is not doing much this season. Aguero's come back and he's had no impact for two games. Um, David Silva's obviously gone, but he was a major contribu- contributor last season. Bernardo Silva's only recently come back from 
injury injury for the most part. It was injury. Does Sterling the- even have a does Sterling even have a goal? Sterling has this a goal. season. Sterling does have a goal. Um, at least one. At least two. But you can't say he's delivering anywhere he's near not, his yeah, level. His, his potential end product, I don't think, is being met right now. Not at all. Yeah. But you have to attribute some of that to, one, they lost Leroy Sané, one of their most dynamic players by far. Yeah, but he had and, last season. And, well, what happened last season? They lost the league to Liverpool. True. If Sané had not been injured from the community shield for the entire season – who knows what could have happened? You know, he's such a good player that mm. he was invaluable to their team. He was the guy that if he was playing and he was against your team, he was probably the guy you're most worried about. Tell me he wasn't. I would agree with that for a bit. He's the most, I think he has a mixture of end product and overall technical class slash ability that is, very um he's just very strong in both categories and because of that he stands out a lot more than most players Mm -hmm. those who look i'm not saying he's better than these players that i'm going to name okay do not i don't want it to be taken that way but players like salah and sterling are players who have tremendous end product and who are great players but the way their technical maneuvers and the way that they play is not nearly as graceful and in some ways technical and intelligent as Sané. And mm. because of that, I think his the mixture of both of those things is super valuable and is what makes him stand out a lot. And he's also incredibly quick. That obviously helps his case, but I think he really is a he's a special player. I think injuries have hindered him, but I think he will do very well, Byron. And I think he was a big loss. And I think in their best season with uh, the Centurion season, mm-hmm. when they really they really stomped the league. And the season after, they did as well. Stomped the league. They were winning most games by four goals, yeah. five goals. Yeah. Uh, the Centurion season, Sané was a major part of that side. And the season after that, Sané was still a large, large role player, even though Mares was kind of incorporated more. Mm-hmm. I think Mar. I don't get me wrong. Morris is a very good component now. He's very gifted. I don't know if he contributes as much to a fluid system as Sané did because of Sané's... He can give you a lot in counterattacks that Morris doesn't necessarily give you. Morris likes having time with the ball, being mm-hmm. able to survey a whole defense's shape, even in a he low does. he delivers. Because he loves yes. left and delivering that cross into the six yeah post and it's a fantastic cross he delivers more often than not to be honest it's really Mm -hmm. impressive but it doesn't get you that end product every time and he's one of the few midfielders now that i think has that consistent end product when de bruyne isn't playing Mm -hmm. and i think that's been an issue no silva is uh it's going to be a problem for a while ferran torres won't get to his his level anytime soon, even though he is a very good player. And so that's why I think City is my number one. I reckon they're your number one as well. Yeah, I mean, in terms of underwhelming, you would expect them to be top of the league right now with maybe one game lost or maybe one game drawn. But you would expect them to have simply because of... And it's 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 almost 
a case of uh, victims of their own success because they've set such high standards in the past three, four, five seasons. I would say three seasons, definitely, that for them to now be looking average, to be honest, an average team that obviously has the potential to to stomp most teams in the league, but just isn't living up to that. And I think it's because of no a lack of leadership and a lack of strictness on the pitch. Um, it really invites any other team to then just believe that they can get a point off of them or maybe even all three. Uh, because they know if they can score one goal against them, if if an opposition team can score one goal against City, they can possibly, depending on the day, break City's mentality and change City's game plan. Maybe that has to that reflects on Pep Guardiola as a manager, coming from a position of, from Pep Guardiola, constantly winning, constantly dominating the ball constantly creating chances and constantly scoring many goals per game. So when it comes to a season that none, not everything is clicking and they're not scoring a lot and they're, they're conceding a lot more than a Pep Guardiola side likes to, because he likes to just hold possession and will limit the opposition scoring opportunities simply by having 70% possession in the game. But Opposition have now figured out how to hit them on the counter and scare City. In it doesn't matter if you have seventy percent possession. If you can frighten the opposition in the in the four or five counterattacks you have a game, and maybe get a goal on one or two, you're gonna make the opposition believe. In this case, the opposition the opposition is City that you're a lot more dangerous than you are. And if City are having trouble finishing because Aguero's off of form, they don't have David Silva, they don't have Kevin De Bruyne, they don't have Leroy Sané anymore, and Ferran Torres is not picked up where Leroy Sané has left off, it's, they're definitely a lot weaker of a team uh, than they used to be. Yeah. Um, so we're going to agree on City. And we're going to move on to the three most overwhelming teams and I think this will be interesting because I think there have actually been a lot more than three mm. overwhelming teams so far in the yeah. league. And yeah. I do, I feel like there are so many honorable mentions that we can give low key, but um, maybe we'll do an honor. Maybe we'll start with an honorable mention. You, you start, you start. My honorable mention who is not in the top three, but who I really want to commend is West Ham. Mm, interesting. Okay. I think Go on. they have looked excellent in the last three weeks. I think they actually have a clear system now. And I think um, they're players that have grown in maturity and who already had ability, such as uh, Antonio Ogbona, who, who used to be a good player in Italy. Yeah. Ogbonna, Pablo Fornals, who is a very good player in La Liga. Anderson. Jared Bowen, who is an excellent goal scorer in the championship and has come, gotten off to a running start in the Premier League. And mm-hmm. then two Czech signings. Suchek, who they signed last year from Slavia, uh, Slavia Prague. Pardon mm-hmm. me if that name is incorrect. Um, and then his teammate, who they signed over the summer, right back Kufal. And they've mm. been 
they've added a new uh, elements of threat, but also defensive reinforcements because it's a right back in a defensive midfield, but both mm-hmm. have full scoring and assisting abilities. I think, mm-hmm. yeah, they strengthen and they've developed a style. Declan Rice is incredibly good. Mm-hmm. Let's not forget, he's looking very, very solid. And don't forget they picked up Andy Carroll as well. No, Andy Carroll's on Newcastle. Okay, edit that out. <laughs> my mistake, my mistake, my mistake. You're chilling. Um, yeah. So, and they've gotten the results. They've tied Spurs. That was, that was their most... Uh, I think that was the most significant result as far as stature because Spurs really looked like they dominated there and they showed a lot of character in the game. But mm-hmm. they also won some big games. They won against Wolves and Leicester and both of those mm-hmm. were hard games. And um, they gave Arsenal a very tough game even though Arsenal won. They looked West Ham looked the better side, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they deserve an honorable mention for me. Um, mm. Yeah. You have an honorable mention. Uh, I'm I'm gonna just say something quickly about West Ham. I mean, they've been impressive. That there's no doubt they've been impressive, although inconsistent. And you have to say, you the only thing I want them from a neutral per- point of view, and let's just say a neutral point of view that wants them to succeed simply for entertainment value of, in, in in the league. I would love to see. For me, I would love to see as many quote unquote underrated teams succeed as possible simply to just mix things up right three three against tottenham is impressive wonder goal at the end to save that to get that one point um instead of the zero but that's how that's how the game is that's how football is and uh you definitely can't discount that that was a wonder beautiful strike from manuel lanzini and Let's not forget they had to score two goals to get to that point as well. So they had to put a lot of pressure on Um, West Ham. They definitely have a stronger system. It looks like Antonio has completely stepped up his game since project restart. Uh, I think he's been the highest scorer in the league since that time. He's been just trying to activate his game to a new level. And yeah, they look really strong. Um, next game coming up on October 31st is against Liverpool. Uh, it's a Halloween game, so who knows which team that's going to be a little scary for. Um, oh, that's God. definitely going oh, def- to... <laughs> it's definitely going to be an interesting game, though. Um, and I'm really excited to watch that one. So uh, a 4-0 drubbing of Wolves, very impressive. Um, because Wolves, you would, you would accredit them to have some some uh a strong defensive system wolves are a very systemic team very driven and very drilled right so um you're, you're a three a th- in every game uh, excuse me i couldn't hear you and they still get results this year even though they don't win every game and that's important. exactly they've they've been getting results um and a three no win against Leicester is impressive as well um again a draw against city definitely a result that not most teams will get. So that's, that's an extra point in their pocket that um, they can boast above, uh, above other teams, you know, West Ham in previous seasons have struggled with almost being relegated, dodging around that relegation zone and just avoiding it. I don't think they're going to be, I don't think they're going to be really concerned with that this season. I think they're going to be 
at least comfortably mid-table, if not maybe trying to edge into the top half. And then in, in coming seasons, they can uh, build upon that. So when it comes to um, my, I'm not going to go with an honorable mention. I'm going to go straight into, um, into one of the, one of my three um, overwhelming teams, if that's okay with you. Yeah, let's do it. So Leeds, Leeds have been completely. And of wow. course, I'm going to agree with that. What a team. Time to, um, that was definitely up there. Yeah, I love Leeds. I love Leeds. And um, I think Bielsa is just a different level. And I think he can get something out of his players that most coaches can't. Mm-hmm. And I think their performance against Villa was very impressive. And it was a much-needed win. It's a statement victory. It's three points needed on the board. And it's also Villa were looking very strong. And mm-hmm. getting a win against that team is not what everyone would have expected from them. Uh, I think, especially with Calvin Phillips out, there were question marks above Leeds' game, but they really rose above and beyond. And otherwise, they've looked that threatening during so many games this season. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And they're just incredible. They're- and the system is its so much fun to watch. It's yeah. Robust. They attack relentlessly. They defend relentlessly. Their energy is nearly... They have quality. Of course they have quality. And, and the thing that people kind of understate a little bit. People think it's is all there, system, but they do have good, some very good players. And they're just so impressive in the way that they play. They're totally unapologetic. They're full energy, full press. Bielsa does not care. It's so obvious that he does not care where he's come from and that he's brought this team up from the championship. He, it's clear to see that he already considers his Leeds team to be a, at least a top half prem side. And that's just so refreshing. Um, from a from a neutral's point of view, from a, a viewer's point of view, from a fan's point of view, from my point of view, that a newly promoted team is already considering themselves good enough to play with the big boys, to push Liverpool to a 4-3 win, uh, to a 4-3 loss, excuse me, in, in Leeds' case, but then beat Aston Villa, an informed team, a very informed team, 3-0, with their striker who's had a lot of questions raised over his head over his career. And what a hat trick he had. I mean, the composure in the second and third goal was just, the second goal was, it just made me question, how did he hit that so casually from outside the box, top bins, bar bar down, excuse me. And the third goal, he has four Villa defenders surrounding him literally just lets the ball roll. He doesn't touch it besides his first touch. A few seconds go by. He just lets it roll and repositions himself on the other side of the ball and then just kind of kind of bends it into the side netting. It's just class. And, you know, it, it, it really exemplifies the confidence that Leeds are playing with at the moment that Bamford can go for a shot like that because – they know that's not going to be their only chance of the game. They know they're not that affect him enough to give them him all that space and not bite to the ball whatsoever. 
which is the interesting bit. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just the fact that his, his teammates know that they're going to let him have that chance and let him try that because, you know, five minutes later or less, they'll probably get another counterattack and they'll probably get another break and a chance to score. That's just how intensely they play. And they're, they're just a fascinating team um, that I think they'll have no problem staying up. But the question is, where are they going to end at that? Uh, where are they going to be at the end of the season? And first of all, where are they going to be by Christmas? Um, you know, Christmas is always a big thing in the Prem where teams at Christmas, whoever's leading the league at Christmas is going to win most of the time. But for Leeds, such a historic club. Yeah, they really have caught my attention this season and uh, definitely overwhelming for a lot of teams. I think they'll be seventh at Christmas and ninth at the end of the season. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My prediction. Uh, but yeah, Leeds okay. definitely for both of us on that list. Um, and the next team for me, is going to be one that has actually been mentioned a few times already in this conversation. And it's Aston Villa. Mm. Yeah. Villa have four wins and one loss. That one loss being to Leeds this weekend. Um, But Villa was a team that last season looked like the weakest team that stayed up in the league. And they stayed up really off of a fluke in that they had a VAR Goal disallowed. I forget the team it was against. It may have been Sheffield United or Burnley. Sheffield. It was Sheffield United. Sheffield United that kept them in the league when the, the decision was really a farce. It was not actually the correct call whatsoever. It was really a fuck up. And they really had no sense of quality besides Jack Relish. They looked very areas. But I think they. They got re- they had reinforcements over the summer, and I think the stature of Aston Villa as a club meant they were able to spend good money on Emmy Martinez, Ross Barkley on loan, great signing, um, and Maddie Cash. Those are the three most notable. Oh, and Ollie Watkins, actually, mm-hmm. not to be understated whatsoever. And those are really good signings, a few from the championship and a few Premier League, and they've really made their um, money's worth so far. Bar- Barkley's been excellent. Watkins has been excellent. And Cash has been a huge upgrade on Al Mohamedy, who was their right back before. Mm-hmm. And Ponsa and uh, Tyron Mings also look excellent at the back. And mm-hmm. Matt Target has been a good Premier League left back for a couple seasons already. He's not been great, but he's very mm-hmm. young and learning. And the more experience he gains, the more valuable he is to a Prem team. And Villa is a team that definitely suits him so far. And obviously, McGinn and uh, Douglas Luiz, both of them start for their respective national teams. Brazil for Luiz, which is really impressive. Mm-hmm. Definitely. For Brazil, getting the first nod as the six. And then McGinn for Scotland, who obviously it makes sense. Uh, very good midfielders and then the best player on the team in my opinion, Grealish, who uh, is probably my favorite player to watch in the league at the moment. Uh, Hopefully it remains that way and they keep having good performances. And then I think the one player I haven't really touched upon is Emi Martinez, and I think he's also an incredible signing. I think he was one of the best three keepers in the league uh, after lockdown. 
I think I've expressed this in a uh, poll. But yeah, he was excellent and he's really helped them passing out of the back. He's great with his feet, but he is also, he has a huge frame. He saves most things. He handles the ball. He's intelligent. He's an excellent addition for a prem side. And uh, yeah, so Astonville is definitely the second team on my overwhelming list. They've been great. And it's been cool to see them really reach new heights. It's It's been a joy to watch them. Um, totally unexpected. I mean, the difference between this summer, uh, this transfer window, this summer transfer window, and last summer is that it seemed like last summer they were doing things. They were making signings like Wesley for mostly just okay, an idealistic version of how will we survive in the Prem? Let's get a big, beefy striker to hold play up, nod balls in, you know, distribute a pass here and there and get on the end of crosses. And let's be honest, the premise changed a lot since those were the, the, um, since that was the, the most prominent strategy, right? So p- signings like Emmy Martinez, Matty Cash, Ollie Watkins, a very dynamic and pacey, intelligent, creative striker. And of course, Ross Barkley on loan. And not to discount the re-signing of Grealish, boyhood, uh, you know, a boyhood supporter, um, and just reaffirming his dedication to a big club like Aston Villa is it's huge, and you you can't take anything away from that. Um, obviously, beating Liverpool seven two going to do wonders for their confidence, um, and even if they lose a few games in between the fact that they can do that to such a strong side will probably give them confidence throughout the entire season that will tell them in the bottom of their hearts, we know we have the quality on our day. If things go well to beat any team and uh, they're going to go into, I think they're going to go into every game of the season with that idea that if we can do beat Liverpool seven, two, we can beat man city, you know, from whatever scoreline we can beat this Chelsea team. We can beat Arsenal. We can beat a strong Spurs uh, side, etc. And so I think Villa uh, definitely shocked a lot of people this season. Um, underrated manager. Who's uh, to be honest, I'm not an expert on his tactics, but just the way he seems to manage players and get people playing with confidence. Uh, it, it, it's, it's admirable. Um, and if you don't mind, can I move on to my uh, third team? Please do. So I'm, I'm kind of torn between Tottenham and Everton, but I'm going to go with Everton simply because they are leading the league right now. That was going to be my choice too, so respect. So let's go with that. So although... I do believe, and I don't want to speak too much on Tottenham because this is Everton's segment, but I do believe mid-season and by mid to late season, Tottenham will be in the top three. Um, Simply because of the the quality of their signings and once they get a few months to settle in, they're going to be, ooh, really good. But right now, Everton have played five games. They have a game in hand that I think they're going to play later this weekend. 
against Southampton, and they have 13 points. And if they win that game, they'll con- they'll um, continue their uh, first in the Prem ranking with uh, 16 points. Let's say if they win, right? But the signings of James Rodriguez, Abdullah Decore, um, Alan, they got uh, you know Andre Gomez in midfield. Didn't they sign someone else in um, in their midfield as well? Someone new? Yeah, Hoiberg. Hoiberg. No, Hoiberg's on Spurs. Yeah, he is. Oh, you mean in no, Everton? I was talking about Everton. Yeah. Oh, Alan Ducore, James. Alan Ducore, James. And uh, that's all I can think of. Regardless, it's such a it's such a powerful upgrade for the core of a team, right? On, Gary Ben Godfrey. Ben Godfrey as a center back. Yeri Mina finally coming into form as his, you know, he he came from Barcelona hyped up, maybe didn't hit it off in the Prem instantly, but scoring goals now, and not just his goals, his goal and set piece threat, but just like he's solid defensively. Michael Keane, very reliable, becoming very consistent at the back. And he's always on the signs, but he's actually he's doing it now. Mm-hmm. Luca Dean, left back, super dynamic, pacey, intelligent player, right? This is Richarlison on the left wing, Calvert Lewin banging in goals left and right. Seamus Coleman's a very good captain. Seamus Coleman with that leadership ability, sure, he may not give you the physicality and the pace and the no, actually, electric- nah, bro. If you watch, if you watch Everton. Coleman contributes a lot to the attack when he plays it right back and he covers the. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, he's not going to give you the pace of a Reese James, but But he's going to, he's going to give you the technical ability of a James Milner. And that's experience the, the craftiness. Exactly. And that's, that, that goes even further. You know, he's, he remind, he, he's kind of like an Aspilicueta type where absolutely you you play him in the team not because of his physicality but simply because of his intelligence his leadership and he's going to be able to hold it together no matter the circumstances and then Richarlison is such a promising player like wow he's just really good and, and highly regarded for Brazil very in their national you know, camp he's thought yes of definitely more, uh, promising uh first team players he's like really big and people they love him there and i think it's a testament to everton the fact that they can manage a few of these bigger names who are actually gaining real reputations and i think all they need is they need one type of little silverware to slightly legitimize themselves and then really mm-hmm. off but um even yeah. in limbo We'll see. But I think mm-hmm. Spurs has lacked all these years where they've been very good, but they haven't really gotten any silverware to at least bear the fruits of it with. Mm-hmm. And um, I think if Everton get that, they will, they may rise up and actually become consistent on this level. But yeah, Everton would be my number one as well. I think they've been excellent. Um, yes, definitely. And... I, mm-hmm. yeah. And it always takes some, you know, silverware is so important. Just, well, that's what players play the game 
Well, they, they play it for the love of the game. But if you go pro, you want to win silverware, right? Most players want to win silverware. James Rodriguez did not come to Everton to see out the rest of his career. He wants to win silverware there. Ducora did not come to Everton. I'm sure he had suitors. He didn't come to Everton simply for a prem move. He came because of a project. Alan, Alan from a Napoli, you know, Champions League level team came to Everton. You could say because of their manager. Of course, Carlo Ancelotti is a huge win for them. And the fact that they secured him as their manager is massive. But they have ambition. They're renovating their stadium with a whole new stadium, right? They're getting rid of Goodison, a historic place, building a new stadium on the, on the water uh, in Liverpool. You know, state-of-the-art in, in, in a Spurs-like move of trying to solidify their team as a new-age club, right? And, yeah, they're, they're definitely one to watch. Um, if they get a win tomorrow versus Southampton – um and Southampton are a strong team inconsistent but they can definitely hit um if they get a win tomorrow and they go into 16 points I think they're going to be full of confidence for at least the first half of the season and um they're going to be a real threat for the top four I think a team like Manchester United are going to be they they would worry about Everton pipping them for a fourth place spot or a fifth place spot for Europa League, but we'll have to see. But it's on current form, definitely seems like that. That's something that could happen. Yes, I definitely agree. Um, so now we're gonna do the Q and A, mm-hmm. and so I'm just gonna read out the few answers that I've chosen that we should just discuss. It's gonna be timed no more than two minutes. Um, so yeah, sure. that's what we're gonna be doing. So the first thing, and a lot of these are concerning Champions League. So the first thing, and as an American, I'm uh, I'm very interested in this one, Gio Reyna. You said, what do we think? Yeah. Hmm. Well, it's interesting because one of my best friends, um, he did trials. He was a goalkeeper and he did trials uh, for NYCFC. Um, a few years ago and Gio Reyna was one of the, one of the kids there with him. Right. And my friend told me that Gio Reyna, interesting anecdote, not really related to the champions league, but he said Gio Reyna had the hardest shot that he'd ever experienced. And this was when Gio Reyna was probably about 15 or 14. So this is a kid who's been touted as just something different um from the american setup than most people uh and it's really interesting to have at least some type of um you know third or fourth person connection to him but although i've never watched him like really intently the fact that he's getting so many plaudits and so much praise um, and he's assisting, he's scoring, he's getting involved. He's a creator, uh, at only about 18. I think he's 18. He definitely has a huge future ahead of him. And, um, I think a lot of people worldwide are also, they're, 
they're noticing him and they're noticing Americans uh, really starting to show their quality around the world. Uh, it, it's exciting, but I'm not an expert on Gio Reyna, so I'm going to let you speak more about it. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to say something quickly before we move on. Um, yeah, I think Reyna just has a great football IQ, and I think it's so apparent from his young age. He's almost like a bit of a Mueller-type player, in my opinion. Uh, I see him as that because he technically he's class, but his um, the way he moves is slightly unorthodox, but his effectiveness is top class. His assists are um he's gotten i think he's gotten three assists in the goal in all competition so far this season and um yeah he's just very effective he's very smart with his movement he a lot of his play is one touch he's unselfish uh but he also knows where the goal is and he knows where his teammates are and that's why he starts mm-hmm. for Dortmund now and it's very impressive and so the next thing that was brought up that I wanted to talk about a little bit was do we think what do we think of Havertz and Chelsea? So someone asked how underwhelming Havertz has been. So mm. how's he been underwhelming for you? Mm. Um well he scored a goal or two in the Prem. Um and so you can say that that's a uh, that's a decent return comparing him to other top prem strikers uh that you would consider top class like roberto Firmino just scored his first goal today um game week six i believe uh sergio aguero has been you know pretty pretty absent although injuries have hampered him we've already scored but havertz i think i mentioned it earlier in the pod but i the four three three and the three up top just it could work for him eventually, but right now it feels like a force and it feels like Lampard is trying to force Havertz into every game, into every role, just to get him, play him into form. And I got to, okay, you're trying to play him into form. That's fine. But he's not, he's not defensively strong. He's not a presser. Um, he glides around the pitch in an elegant way and he has some really nice touches and obviously he's, he's more of an intelligence player than a pace player, definitely. But he has a lot to work on. Um, there was a chance today in the Man United versus Chelsea game at Old Trafford. Uh, a header came pretty much straight to his head. He missed it. Um, five yards from goal. Definitely should have gotten on target at least. Uh, this was a nil-nil draw, so chances were scarce and he he had a, he had a clear chance there. Um, he has some cool passes, some slick moves, a few, you know, he, he's good at like combinations on the edge of the box or just right inside the, the opponent's penalty box, trying to combine with Werner, trying to combine with Pulisic. But it seems like if you have Werner and Pulisic with pace and power, you need someone like Havertz. You would you would think someone like Havertz is linking it all together, but it's not working right now. I think uh, Frank Lampard's trying to force him too much, and uh, I think he's overlooking the class of Tammy Abraham and um, the, uh, the obvious class of uh, Hakim Ziyech, and I think he's forcing Havertz too much. All right. Well, I think he is, um, I don't know, maybe underwhelming due to his price tag. And I think that his effectiveness has not been where everyone expected him to be, given his numbers in the Bundesliga and Champions League the years before. 
because he was scoring quite consistently, getting a lot of assists for Leverkusen. Um, am I surprised? Mm-hmm. Not really, because the Prem is a hard league to adapt to, and he's young. And his play style is... Um, he's not a player who's... He's technically good, but he's not a player who's technically reliant. He's, uh, he's reliant on his footballing mind. And that's clear in how he moves, the positions he gets in, his clever first touches, his smart passing. He knows when to release the ball. He knows when to shoot. He's smart in his timing. Um, But I think when you adapt to a new league, it takes time to get used to a new type of climate and a new type of timing. Pressure in the Prem is um, higher than other leagues. Generally... Speaking, the physicality is a bit more. It's just hard to adapt. And not only that, but Chelsea also has a a lot of new players. They haven't totally gelled together yet. And him getting used to a new team, not only a new league, plays a role in his adaptation, which I think hasn't been Mm. ideal, but I think he's going to turn out very good. I think he's going to turn out to be a better player than Mason Mount. I think he has more of an X factor. Um, But I think it'll just take some time. But I think he will turn out to be a very, very, very good playmaker. Do you think that if Lampard had not bought Havertz and simply played Mount in the same role, Mount could have grown to been to, um, in theory, this is all in theory, but do you think Mount could have grown to be an equal player to what you're considering Havertz potential to be? Do you think that Lampard, with all his Mount love, he loves Mason Mount, and obviously plays him a lot. But do you think by buying Havertz, he's hindered Mount's growth simply for, I'm not going to say a foreign name, but a more flashy name? No, not at all. Because, look, they've both been getting plenty of time on the pitch. They've both been getting plenty of time on the pitch. Even Mm -hmm. if they play in a similar role, they're very different players, the way that they play. Um, Mount obviously doesn't have the physical size that Havers does. I think yeah. that attacks them a lot more. Mount's very quick. He's 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 a menace press wise. He's with his touches. He takes it more touches than Havertz on average, but he's quicker with his touches. Um, he's a bit more predictable with how he plays, but he's very efficient. Whereas Havertz is, he reminds me more of an old school type of player, and where he's not as consistent with. Every time he gets the ball, he he loses it more. He loses it a good amount. I think that's what it is. Mm-hmm. It's you have to be willing with players like him who have that X factor, as I said before. You have to be willing to accept that they will lose the ball if it means that when they try their maneuvers, which are clever because they're smart players, they will work at least thirty percent of the time. You have to trust mm-hmm. the game. And so Havertz isn't going to be efficient. He may not keep possession as brilliantly with Mount, um, at least right now. He may not press as much. He may not play into a system, but I think he does have the talent and the intelligence to play an important role in their attack and be uh, either a focal point from a deeper position from behind a striker or even play as like a false nine. So... I think it'll take time. Anyway, I think we need to... Listen, this is coming from a guy who you were saying you were excited to see Havertz drop four out of ten performances 
every week for Chelsea. And now I'm hearing you say you want him to succeed. So no, I'm being neutral. I'm need a little explanation not, on no. that. I'm not talking shit on Twitter. I'm being neutral and serious here. All right, all right. There's a difference. Um. <laughs> anyway, so I think we should move on. The next question, the final one. This is more of a Champions League thing, but. All right, so the guy who asked this was a La Liga fan, but I thought, let's just include this as a little fun, little trivia. Let's see what we can do with it to close the podcast up. All right, so how can you make Atletico and Real stop being shit? Mm. Well, I think they're both inconsistent, very inconsistent, but I also think that all of La Liga at the moment, is inconsistent. Mm. I agree. I think that's a good point. I think it's more that La Liga as a competition is falling off rather than the teams. You know, Real Madrid is still class. Right? Barca is still class. Atletico are definitely a strong team and class. But if their week-to-week competition is not as strong as a Bundesliga or a Prem, they're going to struggle when it comes to consistency like compared to an English team or uh, a German team because it really is all about consistency in the, in the Champions League, right? You know, you can have those games that are, that are a surprise, but what it... Co- it's all a buildup. So if you built up consistency from your past few games, um, and then you can just carry that into a Champions League game, and you're not fixated on the fact that it's a European match, it's a different nation's team, it's this, that, and the third, it's just another game. That comes down to management, and that comes down to to how the backroom staff in imbues that mindset in the players and if you're easily spanking um la liga games i mean not the real really were i mean they've had a pretty rocky start to the season but historically they have right so if you don't take la liga nearly as seriously as you take the champions league because you consider the champions league the much greater competition compared to your domestic league, you might find it to be more difficult in the Champions League or in a European competition because you think of it as more important. Therefore, you're putting more pressure on your own shoulders. Whereas, um, not to relate things to Liverpool, but last season, Liverpool had were on, in a title race uh, after having lost the league by one point the year before, right? And... This was the year, 30-year anniversary. Will they win the league? Will they not? There was even more pressure on winning the league than there was on the Champions League. And that's why they were able to pretty much breeze through the group stages. Uh, you know, they, they yeah, they, they, they got through pretty easily. Whereas Real Madrid, they uh, won the league last season. And now they might just be thinking like, Okay, I don't really. I, I, again, with Real Madrid, it's signings, poor signings, overpaid on signings, and um, 
Hazard, poor signing so far. Jovic, poor signing so far. Uh, you know, when it comes down to it, they need goals. And after selling Ronaldo, they haven't had goals. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think Real may struggle in the Champions League this year. But I think in uh, previous years, before last year, when they were winning the La Liga a lot less frequently, um, I think it was due to prioritizing the Champions League because their success in the Champions League did not correlate with domestic success by any means for a mm-hmm. lot of Champions League winning years. I think Barca dominated domestically for a long time when Real Madrid were at their best in Europe. Um, but I think now Real Madrid's issue is just they are very inconsistent on both fronts at the moment. And I think it's because their squad is thinned out and they have less um, overall experience. And they're just in a slightly transitional phase because they have a lot of very, very good players who are phasing out such as Modric and Ramos, who even though they're going to be classed for, I think, a couple more years, they're still relatively phasing out Marcelo. Do you start him because he's great, or do you keep him on the bench because he's probably not as fit as some younger players? A lot of these dilemmas that um, it just lends itself to a transitional phase where you're waiting for young players like Vinicius to really improve and gain an end product and become reliable first-team players. Um, And you're also monitoring the just the aging of some of your most important players in other positions. So I don't think it's necessarily super surprising. I think they'll generally succeed. I don't think they're shit by any means, to be honest. Um, And I think they can get away with this in La Liga because Barca are showing the same signs. In my opinion, Barca are really inconsistent at the moment. And even though I think they have signs of potential on the horizon, clearly showing they, uh, they haven't been winning as much as they uh, would want to. And the Clasico was a reflection of that. It's a good win for Madrid. Atletico, meanwhile, I'm going to try to finish this up soon. We need to finish the pod. It's been quite a bit. So Atletico, meanwhile, I don't think they're shy either. I think they they lend their style to that mentality I talked about earlier where it's like you either win or you lose. The draws aren't really a thing. And I think their low defensive block and robust counter press means that sometimes they fail because they invite pressure and they may buckle even against a weaker team because they invite too much pressure but when they play against a very strong team they have the resilience to be able to fight any attacks that they face for the most part and then counter obviously their ability Mm -hmm. isn't as good as it used to be they don't have Godin they don't Jimenez isn't always fit um, mm-hmm. yeah, great player. Their quality isn't as great as it used to be back then. They're another team that's lost, um, yeah, and that's leaders. Issue Partey's left, that's big. Partey leaving, anyway. Yeah, I think they've lost some key, key players, and I think the way that they can recover from this is if they become a better attacking team. But I don't know if Simile plans to do that. I think Athletic would benefit from having a bit more of a relentless attacking style as per leads then maintain their low block um, defensive our first objective isn't to concede a goal style so I think that's their issue but I think overall those teams will be fine domestically in Europe I don't know if they will win either of them has a chance of winning the whole thing this year 
but I think they'll do fine. So, um, I'm going to ask you one question. Okay. I'm not going to ask your opinion on who's going to win the Champions League, but from what nation will the Champions League winner be? From what league, you could say? I'm thinking. Honestly, I think probability-wise, I'm going to go for Bayern again. So Germany, but just because of Bayern. I think objective strength-wise, they are so, so far ahead at the moment. And they, obviously, they've shown a few signs of weakness with the loss against Hoffenheim. But really, they still are so damn good. And I think they can beat any top side on their day. And their day is more days than most other teams. So I'd still say Bayern. So Germany. Interesting. Um, I don't mean this in a biased way, but I definitely think Liverpool will at least get to the semis this year. I don't think. You don't disagree? Yeah, with that shot. I don't know if they win it, though. It depends. At at the semifinals, at that point, it's – it really gets more into a passion, emotion type of game sometimes rather than just just flat out, you know, power. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I, I definitely think um, an English team can push. But we might have an Italian team too. I think we're underrating some of the Italian teams as well, so. It's definitely going to be an interesting year for it. Yeah, uh, I don't know if it will be an Italian team, but I would very much like to see that, given the fact that I'm a fan of Italian football. Uh, but I think German or English at the moment looks the most likely. And I think I wouldn't count PSG out again. And I'm just going to say that PSG mm-hmm. is very – they have a special attack, and that can get them very far. So. Mm-hmm. That's what I think to close the podcast off. Uh, It's been a long one, so I appreciate y'all for staying with us, if you have, up until this point. It's been fun having this conversation. Um, We're going to keep doing new topics like what we did today for each podcast. So send ideas in. Always open to hear things. And, um, yeah, we hope you enjoyed this and enjoy the rest of the matches this weekend and this week.